Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us again today on Back to the Bible Canada. In our current series on 1 Corinthians, we'll study a message called, That We Might Be One. So let's join Dr. John Newfeld in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, with Dr. John Newfeld. Some time ago, a cartoon appeared. It was one of those old uh, the Peanuts variety. It featured Lucy and her brother Linus. Now, Linus was watching television when Lucy walked into the room demanding he change the channel. And Linus tries to resist. What makes you think you could walk right in here and take over, he protests. And Lucy makes her hand into a fist and puts it into Linus' face and says, These five fingers. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want, asks Linus. And then he slinks out of the room, and then he looks at his own five fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? You know, everyone knows there's a power in unity and sticking together. But let me give you the opposite side of the picture, the prevalence of quarrels and divisiveness. You know, quarrels are a part of life. It's been said we start life by fighting over a rattle and then a toy and then a football and then a position on the football team and then in business and then in politics. And finally, if we get successful enough in politics in the last endeavor of fighting, we can lead a whole nation off to war to fight with another nation. We're finally all grown up. And in the meantime, we fight with friends and spouses and family members and neighbors and even in church. All of life is a battle. Wouldn't it be nice to find an oasis in this life, a place where there's a genuine community of love, a place where wars finally cease, a place where people live not for their own good, but for the good of others. And that's the vision that Jesus had for his church. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, he said in John 13:35. And sadly, it isn't always that way. You know, today as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians 1-4, to I want to concentrate on only one verse, a verse that is central to all that happens in these four chapters we're studying. In verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. What follows after that are the practical illustrations of how the Corinthian church was not united at all. They had at least four factions. But verse 10 is the gold standard. It's what Christ wants for all of his churches. And from my vantage point, that sentence found in verse 10 is so significant to these four chapters, we're going to take an entire radio message just to understand that one verse. But before I launch right into that sentence, would you please notice that the two verses prior to verse 10 fit so nicely into that verse. In verses 8 and 9, speaking of the second coming of Jesus, Paul writes, This Jesus whom we wait for, he says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, in those two verses leading up to his charge for unity, Paul subtly reminds the Corinthian believers of three things. First, that the day of the Lord is coming. 
what the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord, Paul calls the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day at the end of human history when evil is judged and righteousness is rewarded and all things are set right. That day, says Paul, the day the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord, that day belongs to Jesus. 1 Corinthians continues to speak on this theme. If you go ahead to chapter 3.13, Paul speaks about how the deeds of every man's work will be judged on the final day. Some will have built a lifetime of ministry using building materials of wood, hay, or stubble, and fire will consume their work, and others will build in such a way that the day of the Lord will reveal the quality of what they have done, and it will stand. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. A day is coming when all you've done, supposedly in the name of Christ, will be examined and judged for what it truly is. Then in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, Paul calls on the Corinthians to excommunicate an unrepentant immoral brother and then says that his hope in this drastic action would be that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord, he says. That this man would be led to repentance before Christ returns. And then going ahead to 2 Corinthians, Paul shares his deepest desires for the Corinthian church. He writes that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He wants them to stand before Christ and be proud of the faithfulness to Christ that was a part of their life. You know, some explanation is required here. Unlike the man who is being excommunicated, faithful Christians need not fear the day of the Lord. Christ has taken away our sin, bore our punishment for us, and we have been justified by his blood. But there is a judgment of works coming or of a judgment unto rewards. I'm going to say more about that when I speak on that subject later when we study chapter 3. But here in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul will make an appeal to the unity of the believers in the church, he leads his appeal by reminding them that we must all give an account for our behavior before the throne of Christ. He wants the Corinthians to be guiltless, to be sustained in faithfulness right until that day comes. Don't stumble now, he says. The day of the Lord is coming. But then, lest the Corinthians believe that it's all up to them, Paul reminds the believers of a second important fact. Chapter 1, verse 9 simply begins with three important words. God is faithful, it says. If verse 8 contained a reminder of the second coming of Christ, we are well served to remember that Jesus will sustain these believers firm until the end and that God is faithful. God will not give up on these believers. When writing to the Philippians, Paul reminded them that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Here's Paul's note of confidence. Jesus will get his work of sanctification done in you. So we do so well when remembering the Corinthian shortcomings to also remember the promises God had made to them. God was not going to give up on them. All of us should remember the same as we struggle through our own sins. God is not casting us aside. He is faithful. He will sustain us. And then a third matter, before Paul begins his charge about the divisions in Corinth, he reminds the Corinthians that it was God the Father who called them into the fellowship with Christ in the first place. Look at verse 9. In Ephesians 1.4, he would remind those believers that the Father chose them from before the foundations of the earth. There he used the word chosen, and here in 1 Corinthians, he uses the word called. But in either case, they should never forget a faithful God who had called them and made them his own. 
So it may be true that the Corinthian believers were quarreling with each other and that they had lost confidence in the power of Christ and that they were being influenced by their culture. It may also be true that Christ was returning and would judge the quality of their work. These are all the dark clouds that surround this church. But it was also true that a faithful God who made these people his own would never give up on these people. You know, I think we all need to hear that. How quickly we condemn one another. Those for whom Christ died, redeemed, and by his Spirit is faithfully sustaining them until his coming. And how quick we are to despair of our own struggles. Rather than looking accusingly at the other, look confidently at Christ. Believe in his power rather than suspecting the other's weakness. Trust confidently in his transforming, keeping, sanctifying grace, and not in the enemy's accusing, slandering, and condemning spirit. I say this because of the wreckage among so many believers who have accused and treated others with condemnation. What is lacking is not that we think better of them. What is lacking is that we think better of Christ. Do you think that whatever good is in you personally is because of your efforts? Would you take credit of that for which Christ has accomplished? And do you imagine that the failings of your brother or sister are not under the sustaining and faithful hand of one who will bring all the children of God safely to himself? That was the issue before the Corinthian church, even while they had no idea that this was essential. And having made this point, Paul now becomes practical. Let me read verse 10 again, but this time, one step at a time. Here's step one. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break Paul's statement down into four substatements. Statement one, submit to Christ's authority. Please don't pass over even one word here. This is an appeal. I appeal to you. The word means to plead or to ask for something with the utmost in seriousness. And just when you think that this will be a top-down command, Paul lessens the blow by adding the next word, brothers. In a divided church, Paul pulls out a word that reminds them that they are family, brothers and sisters who belong to one another and to one father. If it is God's grace who made them into one family, then they must be who they are, a family. I know that the force of this is sometimes lost because of today's divided and dysfunctional families. You know, but by the grace of God, I have this amazing family. Uh, even my extended family, we've kind of all hung together. And what's more, I've come to know that when things are difficult, I can count on family. And that's exactly what we should have for one another. And when we come back, we're going to look at the basis for all Christian unity. How we treat our fellow brothers and sisters, I think, is a reflection of how we understand the meaning of unity. So often in our flesh, we focus more on the failings and sins of others, and it leads us to despair and frustration. But what a real difference it makes if we all learn to focus on the sufficiency and power of Christ to redeem those situations. After the break, we'll discover more key principles for true unity among the believers. Today might be the day for you to consider becoming a Back to the Bible Canada monthly partner. You know, hundreds of people from coast to coast to coast have chosen to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in this way. They've become a part of the foundation of this ministry. You know, your monthly gift, whether it's 10, 50, 100, or $500, sustains this Bible teaching ministry, including the daily program you're listening to right now. 
So if you've been blessed and challenged by this ministry and want to invest in the ongoing Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, well, give us a call today or sign up online. Choose to become a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible monthly partners. Together, we teach the Bible. When Paul makes an appeal to the Corinthians for unity, he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that appeal can only work when people respect and submit to the authority of that name. In other words, there is very little basis for Christian unity until you and I will place our opinions and our actions and our beliefs under the authority of Christ. Now, before I leave this phrase, I can't help but notice how often the name of Jesus is used in the book of Acts. In Acts 3, Peter and John heal a lame beggar who has been asking for alms at the temple. Verse 6 reads, Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, one Bible teacher has said, the name invokes the character and reputation of Jesus Christ as publicly known. So when Christ's name is used in the healing of the cripple, it deals with the character and the reputation of Jesus. You know, in modern mass advertising, the name of a product often carries with it an image and a kind of a guarantee, and that's exactly how the name is used. And here, by the power, the character, and the reputation of Jesus, I appeal to your brothers. Wow, it's hard for Christians at this point not to listen. Let's now continue in the sentence. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. So here now is the second statement. Agree with each other. Now this phrase, that you all agree, literally reads that you all speak the same thing. In other words, that you are unanimous in your message. What Paul wants to say in 1 Corinthians is that the words Christians use are learned words, words that have been taught us by the Holy Spirit. Our words are words like the cross or the wisdom of God. The phrase that you all say the same thing assumes that believers have been taught a basic Christian vocabulary. You know, it's troubling how often churches use secular words to order the life of the church. I've known men to argue that the church should be run like a large corporate business. I had a mentor in ministry that trained me to speak of my office. He said, call it a study. You know, he said, you can find that in Scripture. Study to show yourself approved. Uh, He said that we should learn the language of prayer and, and, and evangelism and discipleship and Bible study and service, and that ought to dominate our church meetings. He also said that language of the board and corporate decisions ought to be replaced with the language of spiritual discernment for the common good and for the glory of God. You know, I've often wondered about our language. Why have we talked about reaching the unchurched rather than the language of the Bible, the lost? You see, if their problem is that they're unchurched, well, you know, we ought to church them. But if they're lost, well, we ought to help them find a Savior who's going to bring them home. You know, I've been to church seminars where fellow believers were called congregants or even clients rather than brothers and sisters. 
I have heard Christian speakers say things like, if you don't cater to your client base, you will not have an effective church instead of speaking of people who need to be ministered to out of the resources of Christ and our need to disciple and train them to be ministers of the gospel. Or we speak about my mistakes instead of my sins or human weakness instead of the flesh. Well, the list just goes on and on. I want to share something that's dear to my heart. You know, until the church begins to surrender to the vocabulary of Scripture and learns that language like a little child and calls it the vocabulary of the Spirit, I don't think we have a basis for unity. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. See, here's a little secret. We can't agree or say the same thing until we learn what kind of words we are to speak. Until our form of thinking is informed by the Spirit of God, we will approach all problems, opportunities, and decisions from a multitude of perspectives. Okay, let's carry on. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Here now is Paul's third statement. Put an end to all schisms. Do you see the word division in the English text? In the Greek language, it's the word schismata. We get our English word schism from that. But in Greek, the word often refers to a tearing or a ripping apart of a garment. Or the Greeks thought of this word as the tearing apart of something that actually belongs together. It's like having two halves of a dress that have been torn and saying, this doesn't belong in two pieces, it belongs together. And the only way that you can have this as two pieces is that somewhere along the line, violence has been done to this. Well, that's what Paul is saying. I don't want you to tolerate the violence of tearing apart of brothers and sisters in Christ because they naturally belong together. But is it really true that Christian people belong together? I think this is not well understood. Once in a while, I'll hear people saying that they don't go to church. They say they've been wounded. And so they go their own way, just between themselves and Christ. That's how they pursue Christ. And if that's you, please don't turn me off. I'm not going to mistreat you by what I say next. I know that many of you are wounded, hurt, and mistreated by the church. And in your brokenness, you've been unable to face the politics and the infighting and the false and misleading statements that are so hurtful. But can you, for just a moment, say with me, Christian people belong together. And once you say that, you might add something more. Not only do I belong to other believers, I was created by God to eat with and pray with and sing with and study with and listen with and laugh with and cry with my brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus and love me. And if it didn't work out that way for you, I'm so sorry that you had a bad experience, but would you grasp this truth? You belong with other believers. And now to those people who are slandering fellow believers, hurting them, insisting on your own way, and even breaking the fellowship to get what you want, may I call you to repent, lest all you have worked for gets burned up in the final day. Let's hear Paul's complete thought in this sentence. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here's statement number four. 
be united in mind and judgment. Now, the term mind refers to the power of observation. The term judgment means to form an opinion on what we see. Paul wants the Corinthians to be united in the judgments they see regarding certain things. But what has he got in mind? Well, in the next section, we will see that the church in Corinth viewed the various preachers that ministered to them in different ways. Some liked some, and they disliked others. But as we go through this book, we're going to see that they had different ideas as to how to reach their community for Christ. And then they had different ideas on the nature and authority of the apostles, and they had different judgments on church discipline and Christian freedom. In fact, every issue they faced had the potential and the tendency to drive them further apart. Like Linus looking at his five fingers and wondering why they can't organize themselves better for a fight. Paul wants them to be united in how they see themselves, their issues, and the mission Christ has given to them. Now, as we know, this letter will provide them with all the tools they need to have a united judgment regarding things. They need to know more about the word of the cross, the power of the word of God, and the application of the word to various issues. The greatest danger is that we only see matters from our perspective rather than the scripture's perspective. And how do I end this broadcast? Perhaps with only one word. Would you pray for the unity of the church? Would you pray that you would love your brothers and sisters? And would you pray that we become known as the people of love? Because that's what Christ wants for you, and that's what he wants for his church. Dr. Newfeld, uh, today's message has brought up a lot of feelings as I remember pastoring and as you pastored for so many years. And, you know, the wounds and, and the hurts of people are so real in the church. So how do we address that? How do we approach these people whose hurts are so deep? Ben, when I was a younger pastor, I used to blast away at people and tell them to get committed. And when I got older, I got a little softer. And I realized that the wounds were real and that people's scars were real. And all I can say at this juncture in my life is to say Christ wants you to be a part of his body. Can't live without that. He made you that way. And I'm going to plead with you to try again. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, for that person out there who is suffering from wounds that fellow believers have inflicted upon his or her life. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that there would come a time of forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and joy in being a part of the body of believers. Father, build your church. May we find joy in being with each other. Make the church strong in this day when so many need the power of a loving, reconciling body somewhere. Oh, Lord God, come and establish your presence again in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, Christian unity is perhaps an area that we can neglect to really understand. But clearly, as these verses have demonstrated, it is of utmost importance. Join us for this last program tomorrow, wrapping up week one of our study on 1 Corinthians with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you been feeling tired, beaten down, and alone? If there's anything that the Bible tells us, it's that prayer is a powerful tool for the follower of Jesus. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is dedicating November to pray specifically for you. 
If you receive our monthly ministry letter, there's a prayer note inside. You can return to our office and a team member will join you in prayer. Or if you'd rather, you can visit backtothebible.ca backslash prayer and send your prayer request on a special confidential prayer page. Either way, we're praying for you this month. Prayer is critical to the ministry, so we want to share our prayer request with you as well. Together in prayer, God will do great things. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca backslash prayer to let us know how we can partner with you in prayer this month.